0: Uh, he would go out like into the forest, take his shirt off, pour honey on his chest and just sit there and try to like have patience as bugs crawled on him to eat the honey. Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord, a podcast
1: featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. I'm Brian Lord and on the show today we have Paralympic ski racer, author and cancer survivor Josh Sunquist as he shares his philosophy behind one more thing, one more time his first time out in public after amputation surgery, and of course, his internet-famous Halloween costumes. Last episode, we learned how to reinvent ourselves with Nicole Malakowski, And this week, we hit the slopes of life with Josh Sunquist. So I started by asking Josh about his first time back in sports after his amputation. So before I lost my leg, when I was a child, I played
0: soccer with my friends uh, in the backyard a lot. And then I was diagnosed with cancer. I was nine years old. I had a 50% chance to live. I was on chemotherapy for a few months, uh, but it didn't get rid of the tumor. And so my leg was amputated. This was a month before my 10th birthday. Mm -hmm. And I realized at that point, wow, I'm I'm not going to be a soccer player anymore, as it turns out. Spoiler, I am a soccer player today, (laughs) 20 years later. But there wasn't really a sport called amputee soccer then, but there is now, which is an amazing thing that's happened but at that time I was like wow what, you know what sports can I play and the first opportunity that I had to, to play any sport was actually my church's annual summer softball game like we had this sort of retreat every summer and there would be like this big softball game uh, and it's it's unclear to me like who the teams were like I, I think it was like kind of our church versus like random people that were at the campground or something <laughs> but uh, I had played in it as, uh, as a person with two legs and I convinced my parents to like let me go to it was at Lost River State Park, which was a big deal because I mean, it was literally 16 days after I'd lost my leg. I mean, it's a, it's a as you can imagine, it's a very traumatic surgery to have just physically. Absolutely. Um, and uh, because I mean, it was just like I couldn't, I was still on chemotherapy. I didn't have hair because I was on chemo, I had to get shots every day. So, they had to uh, arrange for a doctor friend from our church to give me the shots while I was there, but it was uh, it was an important thing, I think, for me to be able to take that uh, step, so to speak and uh, and and to do it in a friendly. Environment. So all of that's the sort of precursor to say. Then you know, I I decided like I would go up to bat. Like I would I would try to play the game like I had before. And when it was my turn to go up to bat, I set my crutches down. I, I, at that time, I had a pair of underarm crutches, and I hopped over to home plate. Um, but I didn't have any balance because it, it just happened. And resetting your balance after you lose a leg is really significant because the leg is almost 20% of your body weight. And so your center of gravity is very different. So to be able to balance, then I had to use the bat. You know, the bat was kind of my cane, right? So I was trying to hold the bat and be ready also to swing. Uh, but just to give you the full picture, like I said, no hair, no eyebrows, no eyelashes. I always wore a backwards baseball cap uh, during that whole year that I was on chemotherapy. But a cool thing was uh, because this was uh, my My church there, that some of the boys there had been part of this group who, three months before, when I was diagnosed. Uh, and and found out I was going to lose my hair, and I was really devastated about that. 18 of my friends, including my brother, a bunch of boys from my homeschool group, and a bunch of boys from church. 18 of them came over to my house, and they had this head shaving party wow. in the backyard. All shaved their heads, <laughs> which was um, uh, it was you know amazing, right? It was so cool to to be able to have friends like that, uh, you know, who would who would give you that signal that you're not the only one, right? Yeah. That I, I didn't have to be the only nine year old who didn't have hair. So a lot of those boys were there at that game, and and this was the first time that they had seen me since I had lost my leg. And it, you know, it was really important to me that they they see me and say, yeah, Josh looks a lot different than he used to. He has one leg. This is this is like very uh you know visually uh, different, but but he is still the same guy that we've always hung out with, that we played soccer with, that we go to church with, that we go to homeschool group with. So that's all the context. And I, the first pitch came uh, from from Pastor Smuland at the pitcher's mound. I'm trying to simultaneously let go of the bat, but like pick it up and then stand and be on one leg and swing and, and hit the ball. But of course, I swung and I missed, and I had just no sense of balance, and so you know I lost control of the bat. The bat went flying. I you know spun. Around from that force of the swing, and I uh, then I fell. Of course, in uh, and I feel I, I don't know what it is about. I guess all baseball and softball infields fields have that you know that dusty dirt right that forms this cloud. You know when, yeah. when you fall in <laughs> very
1: Charlie Brown. Yeah, when you
0: fall in it, but uh, but yeah, I feel like very cinematic. Yeah, you know very <laughs> very dramatic then that that I had to. To like brush off the dirt like physically to come back for the second pitch and and i picked up the bat and then i hopped back over to home plate and uh, i mentioned how a lot of my friends were there but my dad was there too um he had driven me to to lost river and he was watching from the behind this chain link fence kind of in front of the first first base dugout and so you know i knew i knew you know like i said i wanted my friends to see it, and i wanted my dad to see me succeed in this too and you know it's interesting now as an adult i don't have children yet but I, only a try to imagine and I feel that I failed to imagine what it would feel like for my dad in that moment or just for my parents over that year. I think in a lot of ways it was harder for them than for me. I think just to, to see your child suffer and to be really truly unable to do anything to alleviate that, you know, that I can't like so many times my parents told me Joshua, I wish they could take my leg instead so many times over that year. And I, I, I look at that now and I think wow, you know they had to be strong for me. Like I I would cry but like they didn't cry. But I know they were crying in private all the time. But in front of me they felt like we need to be the strong ones mm-hmm. for our son in this moment. So the second pitch came same thing, I swung, I missed, the bat went flying. I got the bat, I came back over for, for the third pitch. And uh, at this point, my dad, like all parents for all time, I feel like it was like, yeah, keep your eye on the ball, right? And you're a sophisticated coach, so you know. But but for other other parents, like they don't know anything, I'm pretty sure about baseball <laughs> or softball, but they're like, I know this. This is, this is the thing I know that will solve all of the child's problems. <laughs> they keep their eye on the ball. Just what which is also it's also just a weird phrase, like why not both eyes? why not, yeah. why not binocular vision I, uh, like that seems very important <laughs> no, just one eye <laughs> just that's one all eye. you need, yeah. keep it on the ball, So my dad said that I was like, oh yeah, keep it right, and the third pitch came, and I swung and I missed. I knew about baseball I played Little league, and so I had assumed three strikes. I was out to me as an adult now or to to any adult listening it's it's so obvious, but that that no no adult at this game, even if they were from the other team, even if they were like a competing church or whatever, like no adult is ever going to be like, hey, hey, like, yeah, wait, 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 like that boy I've been, I've been tracking, I've been tracking all the stats <laughs> and yeah, I know 50% chance to live. I, yeah, I know he lost his leg. Fifteen days ago, sixteen days ago, like no, Todd, competition is everything. There are winners <laughs> and losers. We're like nobody's gonna right because it's it's the opposite, right? They're gonna be like, please just keep swinging. Yeah. Like we don't care. We'll quit our jobs. We'll move to this baseball <laughs> field. We'll stay here all summer. That's just please don't break our hearts. Yeah. Uh, so, but uh, yeah, I just didn't I didn't understand. I just thought like, wow, I guess these people just because I, I got they're like no no just keep. Going. And I was like. Pfft. I guess they just don't know the rules. Yeah. Like, how lucky is this for me that I just get extra strikes for some reason? So I was like, all right, yeah, I'll, I'll just keep swinging. So I did. So I got another strike and another and another. I think it was around seven strikes. I, I felt, um, you know, that, that sort of breath that you get that tells you you're going to cry. And I, you know, my parents had seen me cry, of course, and I cried in private a lot over that year, but I never let anyone outside our family see me cry. and never especially let my friends see me cry. So I, I dropped the bat and I hopped over and I picked up my crutches and I started to walk off the field uh, just to, I was just like, I'll just go be by myself. Like, I don't want anyone to see this. And uh, at that point, you know, my dad, um, he called out to me from behind that that chain link fence. And I think, you know, again, like what, a, what an interesting moment uh, for my dad. My dad said, Jo- my parents always called me Joshua, and still to this day, they're the <laughs> only people in the world that call Joshua, me Joshua. Yeah. And my brother Matt, they call him Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> so I, my dad was like, "Joshua, you almost had that last one," and I, and I stopped. And I, I looked at him, and and he he put two fingers like kind of through one of the holes in that chain link fence, and he said, "It was this close." And my you know, my dad was and is, you know, he's my hero. And I knew that if he was up to bat, he would keep swinging, you know, until he got a hit. And I knew that's what I had to do. And I would say that, like, that was the moment when I knew how many swings I was willing to take, which was as many swings as I needed to. So I came back over and I set my crutches down and I just said, yeah, I'll just this is i'm in, i'm in it you're know, like i'm going to keep swinging until i get a hit you know in in baseball or softball you get either 3 strikes or 4 strikes depending on uh, what league you happen to be <laughs> playing in? But it, it, but in, in the vast majority of situations in life, especially professionally, you know, there's there, there's not like three strikes and you're out rule. It's it's like really, how many strikes do you want to take? Like if you're a salesperson, how many nos are you willing to take? How many calls are you willing to to make? How many failures at this or that are are you like? It's it's really up to you. So it's kind of a question of are you the person who are you a kind of person who can be struck out? Do you have that sort of like. Uh, Three, three times, four times, you're done, or are you the kind of person who says, no, this is the thing that's going to happen. I'm going to make the hit. It's not a question about that. It's just a question of how many strikes, but it doesn't matter how many because I'm going to keep swinging. So that's, that's the mentality I had then, and I got another strike and another strike and another strike. I Just uh, just actually about two months ago, my mom was going through old documents and she found a, a, a journal, like a sort of journal that this guy who went to our church had written he had photos of me from that game. I had never seen a photo before. Oh, he had wow. This photo of me on this field. So I was so skinny. I weighed like fifty-eight pounds, and no hair, of course. And and he had written this this account of it, which was really interesting because, it, like I said, I've been telling this story for so long, and 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 to read someone else's perspective of it, and to think to think what that what that moment must have looked like for anyone else who was there who knew my story. Uh, but the interesting thing was that that he said it took over twenty pitches, twenty pitches that I just kept swinging and, and I just imagine what it must've been like for my dad or for that guy or for people in the other team who didn't know me, just thinking, wow, I hope he keeps swinging. I hope he could, but I, but I, maybe he won't because this is a lot of pitches. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I remember, in fact, this, this moment where, because there was, on the other team, there was adults, but there was also children and, um, who might be sort of like less sensitive to my situation. And the more I swung, I remember that there's this shortstop, a kid about my age who kind of kept coming like closer and closer. You know, you got that idea. You've seen it in church league where you realize, Oh, like if this dude gets a hit, (laughs) it's not going far and I'm going to be ready to field it. And I just, but I remember how that stung, like that idea that even if I, even I got the hit, this kid, my, my peer had judged, it's it's not going anywhere, and I I can be like halfway between the pitcher's mound and, of it's and a home short plate. Stop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, the other people can't leave the base. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and so uh, yeah, so he he uh, he stayed there, and, and finally, yeah, finally, I did I did get a hit. It, it bounced off the bat, and it, and it and it and the shortstop was correct to his credit. It was very <laughs> slow, but but it was like even slower than the shortstop had anticipated because it rolls just. Just barely moving, and fortunately, I, because I knew I, you know, I can't, I can't like hold crutches and a bat simultaneously. So I would had this this friend of mine named Tim, who was going to be my designated runner. So yeah. he had been ready this whole time, just sitting there. I never really thought about. it. I don't know what he was thinking the whole time. But <laughs> he's just like ready in a sprinter's <laughs> position. Uh, and so finally, uh, finally, I got the hit. Tim took off, and by the time it reached the shortstop, like Tim, it was already on first base, and I had my base hit. In fact, then I, I swapped out and I, I got my crutches and I actually went over and, and Tim walked off and I ran the rest of the bases. Uh-huh. And that photo that the guy from my church uh, sent or had given my mom and that I just saw for the first time a couple months ago was actually, there was enough base hits that I rounded the bases. And the picture is of me running on my crutches 16 days after the amputation across home plate. Wow. With the caption, Josh coming home. And I look at that story and it is... Um, well, it's not just, you know, It is a st- on the surface, of course, there's a story about how I got a base hit. But, but, but really, I think the important thing to me looking back on it and in sharing that story is that it's not just me getting a base hit. It is this team effort that happened, right? It, it, was, it, was, it was all these people coming together and, and the roles they played, right? And it was my dad, right? right? Like I said, he, he was able to keep me in the game, right? And I think that like, on every team, like there needs to be that person. Like, can you be that person who can keep people in the game? Number two, there there's my, uh, we, we could say really anyone on the other team, but I would say fundamentally also my pastor, who by definition is sort of the arbiter of any <laughs> church softball game. He's, <laughs> he's the umpire also, uh, and the dispenser of, of rules. Uh, and fortunately that day, uh, decided to play by grace as a good Calvinist. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but, 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 you know, what's but, but interesting, right? Because we've all dealt with those people who are like hide behind the, they're like, no, it's, this is what the rule is. Like, I'm, like, I'm throwing these policies at you. Instead of knowing what is actually the good thing to do, or even the right thing to do, they're just like, no, really, I just don't feel like throwing the ball more, you know? But my pastor, fortunately, was able to say, you know what, The, the right thing in this situation is to keep throwing the ball, right? Is to is to give some extra grace or leeway to this person because that's what he needs, and I'm willing to offer that. And every mm-hmm. team needs that kind of person, that kind of leader. And and finally, then there was my friend Tim, who who ran for me, and you know I think it's easy, uh, you know. Of course, we always want like credit for our jobs, and we, and we but. Uh, but it's it is hard to be that person. It is hard to to run for someone else when they can't. Like we all want to say that we would, but like really, like in a professional sense, to like do someone else's work for them, to help them because for whatever reason they can't, and potentially not even to take credit. Like that's hard. But like a great team has those sorts of people on the team. So for me, it is uh, it is really then a story, yeah, about teamwork and how that. Um, that team, by which I mean not just the people who were literally playing on my team, everybody who was there that day like came together and gave me this moment of feeling like, yeah, I have one leg. I look really different now. I prob- I'm i not physically able to do quite what I used to, mm-hmm. but I can still play softball. I can still play sports. And it was soon after that that I learned how to ski. And uh, then years after that, I started ski racing. And then years after that, I, I went to the Paralympics and became a Paralympian. But
1: I think, it, you know, it really started in in
0: that moment on that softball field. I know you've already
1: mentioned your dad is, is a mentor to you. Who are some of your other mentors that affected you either before that or after that?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I think my, yeah, certainly my parents were, were the biggest influence on my life. You know, I, I recognize like I've had an amazing outcome, uh, sort of health-wise, from having cancer at a young age and being on chemotherapy for a year and losing my leg, to be able to come out on, on the other side of that and to be able to, to be an athlete and, and just to even be like a functioning human being and to be able to have a job and to be married to a beautiful wife, like all of those things, those are not givens uh, when, you're, when you have that sort of childhood trauma. And, you know I wish I knew exactly how to like bottle that and give it to people and of course as a speaker I, I try to to the extent that I can just in a sense of sharing the narrative and hopefully people recognize something in those stories that is also in themselves but I don't I I don't know exactly like what is the exact step or formula for people but I know that for me as a nine-year-old who had been homeschooled up until that point you know, certainly uh, any good traits that that I had were from my parents you know like they were the People who had been influencing me, uh, like nothing, no one else even came close, you know. And so I think it was fortunate that they had been instilling, uh, instilling that sort of character uh, in me up to that moment. Which, which I would say, then they learned from their parents. And like my my grandfather, who was alive at that time, was also uh, was a great athlete. He was a bodybuilder competitively. The the most legendary story in our family is that he, uh, when he was a young man uh, would wanted to teach himself discipline. And so he would, uh, he would go out like into the forest, take his shirt off, pour honey on his chest and just <laughs> sit there and try to ha- like have patience as bugs crawled on him to eat the honey. That, like that was like, <laughs> that's the kind of stuff my <laughs> grandfather did. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, so like we grew up with, with him as
1: an example too. Uh, so as you can imagine, he was, he was pretty tough and he is the kind of guy that would keep swinging. Doing your job that you do, um, of speaking, what are the things that resonate the most with people they they come out afterwards and they say I took away this one thing. What do you hear the most? I became a ski
0: racer, like I said, years later, when I was 16, is when I first started racing. And I wanted to go to the Paralympics. That was like, that was my goal. And in fact, there was going to, the next Paralympics were going to happen when I was 21. Uh, they were going to be in Turin, Italy. And when I started racing, I was like, I was really bad, actually, uh, like I had these grand ideas about how awesome I was going to be. You know, like even my first race, I honestly was convinced I was going to win my first race. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm going to win. It's amazing. That's how great I am, uh, which is so delusional. And, uh, and actually, like I fell five times times, uh, And I, I was last place by far, but but I did keep getting back up, right? And that is like that lesson that my dad taught me, and, and I am proud that I finished that race, even though I was last place by far. Uh, and then I started sort of competing nationally and internationally, and I was still bad. Like my um, I, I was always either like last place or second to last place in my first eight uh, World Cup races, and so it di- it didn't seem necessarily likely that I was going to make the team. In fact, my my coach, like the dude that I was paying to coach or sort of encouraged me, sat me down he was like, hey, I know you're training for 2006, uh, but really you should aim for 2010 because you have no chance, no chance to make a 2006. At this point, I was 19. I was still kind of precocious like I was when I was 16. I was like, but really? Like, I mean, statistically, like no chance at all. (laughs) And he was like conceded. He was like, I mean, all right, maybe one in a million. And I, at that point, had seen the movie Dumb and Dumber, and, and I was like, <laughs> yeah, "So you're saying there's a chance?" <laughs> I was like, "I got you. I knew there was a chance." And it, and honestly, I didn't necessarily disagree with with his assessment of my odds. I knew I like I could see the scores of you know the times of the races. I wasn't I wasn't like a top contender, but uh, I, I I thought like if I thought well. There has, first of all, you have to believe that there's some chance. If there's not, why even try, right? Yeah. And, and even if there's a small chance, for me at that time, I felt like I want to look back and feel like I did everything that I could. You know, like if I, if I didn't make the Paralympic team when I, 10 years or 20 years from, the, from then, I could look back and say, hey, at least there was no regrets. Like there was nothing else I could have done. And around that time, I adopted this ski racing motto, called uh, which I, I actually abbreviated and wrote, Uh, in Sharpie markers on the tips of all my skis, which was one MT, one MT, which stands for one more thing, one more time. And that was my philosophy as a racer. It was always, could I do one more run through the course? Is there one more thing I could learn about the sport? Is there uh, one more uh, rep or one more workout that I could do uh, after I got off the mountain that day? And that I would say is that, you know, I, I, one time I was speaking and I've been speaking for many years at this point, but, and I just happened to mention offhandedly that, that one more thing, one more time uh and and i so many people afterwards came up to me like what was that thing again like what was <laughs> i want to write it down like one more thing and and i was like hmm like wow I, and it never occurred to me that that maybe it's not just a ski racing motto you know what i mean? <laughs> like had always thought like yeah that's just what you do to be a great ski racer but it was oh like this is just this is like a life mo- like this is for any finish line that you want to cross right uh and and so yeah i would say now in my speeches it's uh, i always i always fundamentally like that is the that is the key theme is one more thing one more time, and then helping people think through what is, is that thing
1: for you in your job. Now, one of the other things, too, outside of speaking that you're most famous for are your amazing Halloween costumes. Yeah, well, thank so, you. So tell us about those, and where did the idea come from? Was that your idea? Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> I uh, I'm looking at his wife who's sitting in the studio yeah, right? who, who, was, <laughs> who was integral to
0: the start of these costumes. Uh, yeah, so first I should say my family did not celebrate Halloween growing up. Yeah, uh, being that we were a very uh, conservative household, it's, and it's funny now that m- these Halloween costumes have become sort of uh, really part of my life and career. And now my parents are always like, oh, what are you gonna dress as? <laughs> like, don't pretend that you guys didn't make us like hide in the middle of the house and turn off all the lights and lock the doors on Halloween (laughs) because we didn't want any trick-or-treaters uh but i yeah so i i mean i didn't dress as anything until i was like in college and just did some moral costumes for a few years and then in 2010 i dressed as a partially eaten gingerbread man i got it was a really simple costume actually i just bought like the shrek gingerbread man costume and literally just cut the leg off (laughs) the left leg in like with bite marks which is like the key detail right so it doesn't look like just a broken costume it's like this was on purpose uh and i would just wore that out to like some halloween parties that night and people thought it was so funny and or they were like that's an amazing costume like where did you hide your leg like how what are the mechanics here i'm like i'm walking with these kinds of like i have these custom one-piece titanium crutches they cost like a thousand dollars like how do you think i own these crutches you think (laughs) think i I got this dirty dollar costume but also thousand dollar crutches to be able to walk with it uh, but it's just funny that people don't necessarily always assume, and I found that with other costumes too, that I've done since then, which are always something that hopefully has like an illusion to it, but uh, but it's often people's first reaction. It's not like, oh, is he an amputee? It's like, how, where is he hiding his leg in this costume? And anyway, to answer your question, then I, I started dating my wife uh, a little while after that costume, and two years later. In 2012, she suggested that I dress as uh, the leg lamp from A Christmas Story, which I, and I just I just love that idea. Uh, and again, I had never seen actually the movie A Christmas Story, um, but <laughs> I knew Chile, what. I, yeah. I, yeah, no, it was funny because uh, so yeah, because then that I, I, a picture of that became very popular on the internet, and I all the comments were people were like fragile yeah. or, or it's a major award all the i was like i don't know why do people keep misspelling fragile like
1: I, <laughs> I don't understand why is that why does
0: nobody know how to spell fragile on the internet so finally i, I watched the movie and understood uh yeah so those that uh after that I, I i was like wow like what an interesting thing that this is um clearly delights so many people online and uh, i was like so yeah like if i can keep thinking of ideas i'll keep doing this Uh, and i have so yeah ever ever since it's just a a new a new costume every year and it's in a podcast format it's difficult for me to like describe the costumes to people um because they don't necessarily look quite the way that you would imagine
1: and just i like even just like the
0: ihop sign like
1: just there's so many (laughs) levels that that works
0: on right yeah and that you know that's funny you bring up the ihop sign one because like that one more than any costume i've done people will be like i don't get it (laughs) <laughs> I just, they'll be like i love your costumes but i don't get the ihop one i'm like what do you what do you mean <laughs> what's not to get yeah. there's so many things to get like it's on so like you said so many, like like it's it's in the name i hop, like i literally hop number two i i'm wearing i'm physically dressed as a sign it's just an yeah, interesting, it's a rectangular sign yeah on a on a pole right and like my leg is the pole it's just an interesting visual gag. and number three like you know i i have like a video and a gif of it it's, and i'm i'm literally hopping like all these things, don't you see how that's? And pe- I don't know. People are like, no, nah, I just I don't know. Like, and then when I, if I explain, it, they're like, oh yeah, okay. Like, how do, <laughs> how is that not so clear to you? I don't know. But uh, yeah, everybody has uh, a different sort of senses of humor, which is an interesting thing that people tell me like, oh, I love this costume, but yeah, I, do, I don't like that one, or I don't get that one, or whatever. But uh, but that's kind of the fun of it is seeing like what what people connect to or what elements of which costumes or which characters because they've dressed as several characters uh, that, that they sort of relate to.
1: So definitely, if you're if you're listening to this, go to premierspeakers.com and uh, on the blog and we'll have that up with Josh. But, uh, well, Josh, thank you so much for coming on. I love the stories. I love, you know, softball and, you know, one more thing, one more time. And just thank you for sharing your story with so many people and inspiring so many people. My pleasure. Thanks for giving me the uh, opportunity to share it with many audiences. Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking podcast. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review you, wherever you listen. To learn more, go to BeyondSpeak.com because adding the ing was too expensive. For this episode of the Beyond Speaking podcast, your technical director, producer, and head Steelers fan was Eric Woody. Your creative director and part time leprechaun was Travis Franklin. Brian Lord, your host, executive producer, and specialist in speaking about himself in the third person. Additional thanks to special consultant and the pride of St. Paul, Lauren D. of D and Associates. Thank you to the incredible voice talents of the Muy Profundo, Robert Borges. Finally, thanks to the premier founder, Dwayne Ward, CEO, Sean Hanks, and CIO, Chris Young, simply because you need to thank powerful people. If you've listened this far, you clearly have nothing better to do. So why not continue on and listen to the next Beyond Speaking podcast?
0: I, I was in a, a, a middle school homeschool band yeah. and I wrote a song about Tulip well it was the story of John Calvin's life uh-huh. and, and then the, the uh, sounds riveting the bridge the bridge was just <laughs> like total depravity unconditional election <laughs> limited atonement all of the listeners right now are like what are they talking about <laughs> this is, this this is